You're listening to Campus Killings, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, DNA ID, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, and Citizen Detective. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. When a beloved professor is killed in his own office, a university comes under fire for dismissing faculty concerns about a student's disturbing behavior. Amy, today's episode really hits home for me because I think every professor has had a student at one point or not who's displayed some questionable behaviors. Would you agree? Yes, I've had many over the years. And I know that the degree of these behaviors can vary, but sometimes I think we are concerned for our own safety or about the safety of other students. And so I know that I've had to report behaviors in the past, and I've reported others just to be on the safe side. Over the last 10 years, I've had to do that several times. And so you hope that if you're concerned about a student, both for their well-being and your own, that administration takes these concerns seriously. That was unfortunately not the case for Dr. Thomas Meixner and other faculty at the University of Arizona. But before we get into Thomas's story, let's learn a little bit about the university. The city of Tucson, Arizona was given a land grant in 1885 to build a university, 27 years before Arizona actually became a state. However, no one in Tucson was willing to sell their land to build a college. So the school didn't actually have a building to open to students until 1891. However, by 1924, the school had taken off and became nationally recognized by the Association of American Universities. The University of Arizona is known for being a research one institution. I'm sure you know that well, Amy. Yes, we luckily do not work in a research one because that is a lot of pressure. I also, we have colleagues that work there, and I don't know if you recall me telling you this, but when I was a PhD student, we had an opportunity to spend a week down um, at University of Arizona. This is where I went to Tent City, run by Sheriff Joe Arpaio. And so I did have some experience on the campus. And that legacy, and that legacy began pretty early. In 1931, the university invented tree ring research and was one of the first schools to open a lab for dendrochronology. Do you know what dendrochronology is, Amy? I can't say I do. Well, this is the science of dating archaeological artifacts through the study of tree growth and environmental factors. So a research one university is simply one that focuses primarily on research and publications, and they give professors more research time release, and they focus on publications and scholarly activity um, a little bit more than at traditional teaching schools. 
The University of Arizona is also the fourth most awarded university by NASA, who gave the school an enormous grant to build a lunar and planetary lab, which I think is pretty cool as well. In 1969, UA assisted NASA in the creation of a lunar map to help land the rocket ship Eagle for one of the U.S. moon landings. And most recently, in 2020, UA worked with NASA again on a mission to take an asteroid sample. So I think you can see that UA is the kind of institution that would attract very successful and bright faculty. Yes. And that was certainly the case for Thomas Meixner. The professor of hydrology first got his start in hydraulic sciences as a boy growing up in Maryland. He spent a lot of his early childhood playing in the rivers near his home and learning about gardening and plant life. Now, as he grew older, he became interested in the human impact of the environment and got a double bachelor's degree in science history and soil and water conservation. And that was from the University of Maryland in 1992. And he was so interested in the field that he decided to go to the University of Arizona to get his master's and doctoral degrees in hydrology. Yep. Smart guy for sure. Yes, absolutely. Um, he completed his doctorate in which he studied alpine biochemistry in 1999. And right after that, well, we know what happens when you complete your doctorate usually. what You either go to um, a research position or usually a teaching position. So Thomas Meixner began teaching as an assistant professor at the University of California from 1999 to 2004. He married during this time, welcoming two sons a few years later, and he was described by many of his colleagues as a wonderfully attentive husband and father. While living in the Southwest, Thomas became extremely interested in the water patterns of arid environments like California and Arizona, and he became an expert in understanding how water intersects biology and geology over desert landscapes, as well as where water, source, water sources come from in such arid places. I mean, this is very complex. Yes. He was also into meteorology and often liked to predict the weather patterns for his colleagues, which I know as a colleague, I would certainly appreciate. Yes, that would be nice. Why can't you do that, Megan? I don't know how to, <laughs> is the answer. Now, in 2005, he left the University of California to teach at his alma mater. And that would be the University of Arizona. Ten years later, he received his promotion to full professor, something I know that we are also both familiar with. And in 2019, he became the department chair for the Graduate Department of Hydrology and Atmospheric Sciences. Dr. Meixner was a favorite professor for many students, and he mentored countless master's and doctoral candidates throughout his time at UA. Little did he know, though, that one of these students would ultimately cause his demise. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. Murad Dervish came to UA to do his graduate degree in hydrology in 2019. And that was the same year that Dr. Meixner became department chair. Murad was pursuing his degree as well as working as a teaching assistant in the department. However, things took a turn in the spring of 2021 when Dr. Meixner gave Murad a midterm grade he disagreed with. Now, most universities have a procedure for disputing grades, which usually involves the student sending a letter to the dean 
And then a committee is formed to look at the case and decide whether to uphold the grade or not. That's similar to our process, even though, Amy, as department chair, doesn't the grade appeal start with you? Yes, it does. Okay. Um, So, you know, a similar process. And we know that oftentimes, too, that students do not necessarily prevail in these attempts. There has to be, you know, a pretty good reason. However, Murad did not even follow the grade dispute procedure. Instead, he blew into Dr. Meixner's office and threatened him directly. When Dr. Meixner refused to change the grade, Murad became excessively angry and continued to verbally and digitally harass Dr. Meixner over 11 times in the course of one week. And this wouldn't be the end of Murad's unsettling behavior. Because between November of 2021 and February of 2022, Murad's behavior became increasingly worrisome. And four faculty members, Amy, including Dr. Meixner and several staff members, filed reports with the Office of the General Counsel and the University of Arizona Police Department, stating that their lives and the lives of others were in jeopardy. That's a huge, I mean, that should be enough for major action. I mean, I've never filed this type of report. No, me neither. Okay. So according to these reports, Murad's harassment included verbalizing and emailing anti-Semitic and anti-Asian threats to minority faculty, as well as displaying violent behavior in offices over the midterm grade and verbally threatening staff members and other students. Both the UAPD and the dean's office connected Murad with mental health services, but there were no follow-ups to see if he'd actually received treatment, and his violent threats continued, continued to mount. This case reminds me of another very famous one, in which the student was referred to mental health services, but there was no follow-up, um, and that was the Virginia Tech massacre. Oh, yep. The student there, it was a very similar situation, so I was looking at this and getting kind of chills, big red flags here. Now, Murad was subsequently expelled from the university, and though he appealed this decision and went through an academic appeals court, he was ultimately banned from the university grounds in February of 2022. However, the campus exclusionary order was never served to him, as UAPD couldn't get Murad to come out of his house the two times they delivered it. And when they brought the case to Pima County prosecutors, they were, to- they were told that there was not enough evidence to charge Murad with anything criminal. So I'm seeing a lot of cracks here. I'm seeing a lot of what happens, disconnect with the agencies. Well, we can't do this, refer it to another place, and then things fall through, right? Yep. So this kind of meant that his dismissal didn't stop his abuses. According to several faculty reports, he was still seen around campus, Amy, and he continued to harass the dean's administrators via email for the details of his expulsion hearing. When they wouldn't give him further information, he sent an email stating, if you don't, the consequences are going to be absolutely catastrophic. I don't think you have any clue who you are dealing with. But you're about to find out, and I really don't think you're going to like it. Did anyone try to get a restraining order? I'm not sure if they... They did get a restraining order in terms of he wasn't supposed to be on campus, but I don't know if there were personal restraining orders granted at this point. Gotcha. 
But I'll, I'll tell you, they were terrified. Um, and they were really scared that the university just was not taking the concern serious enough. One faculty report documented several members purchasing bulletproof vests and having their classes and office relocated so they could be more difficult for Murad to find. This is how concerned they were. Several staff requested working fully remote for several days to avoid being on campus in case Murad came to their office. A few professors had also made their classes fully remote for safety reasons, and some even relocated themselves to temporary housing or purchased home security systems because they were so scared of this student. So the police didn't do anything even after that last threat that you just highlighted? At that point, they put out a flyer with Murad's photo on it to the Department of Hydrology after his expulsion with instructions to immediately call 911 (laughs) if he was spotted in the building. And what if he was spotted with a gun standing in your office, then what? This is just too little too late. Um, That's what I think about uh, this response. Mm -hmm. At this point, you know, if they see Murad in the building, it's probably for a very threatening or malicious reason. So what happened here too, Amy, is that the Office of the General Counsel was concerned about violating personal privacy laws. So they're prioritizing Murad's privacy here. So they didn't want his violent behavior to be publicized to the rest of the school. I'm not sure at all that that was an appropriate response. Um, In addition, though UAPD believed there was no indication that Murad intended to come back to campus, he'd been seen by faculty and students around the university after his expulsion. Now, it's possible that the Office of the General Counsel did not publicize the level of danger Murad presented um, because they didn't realize that the threat he was or how real the threat was. Pretty real to me. It sounds very significant to me as well. I'm just trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. Also, while the UAPD did file appropriate charges against Murad finally in April of 2022, by the way, this is fully after expulsion, they took 10 months to file the case with the Pima County Attorney's Office. Little did they know what was about to happen due to this communication breakdown. On October 5th, 2022, around 2 p.m., one of the hydrology department staff members walked down the hall to Thomas Meixner's office to chat about a student's paper. But the professor was talking to two students already, and the employee didn't want to interrupt, so he went back down the hall to the department's main lobby to wait. But on his way, the employee noticed a man barreling down the hall towards Dr. Meixner's office And as the employee turned into the lobby, he heard two loud bangs. Only seconds later, Thomas Meixner flew into the lobby and tried to close the door as another man pushed his way through. As the man overpowered Dr. Meixner and got into the lobby, pointing a black handgun right at the professor's chest, the employee realized that this man was Murad Dervish. Yep. I could have I could have uh, could have predicted that in hindsight. It's so sad. And it's like your biggest fear, right? It's it's it is the biggest fear as a college professor, I would think. Mm-hmm. And before anyone could react, Murad shot Thomas Meixner in the chest twice and Thomas fell to the ground. Murad then fired a third time before running away. This last bullet grazed the employee's knee and he also hit the ground. 
Now, the other staff in the lobby immediately called 911 and began administering first aid to Thomas and the employees as they waited for first responders to arrive. And Murad ran off at this point? Yes, he had just fled. Um, Simultaneously to the employee seeking out Dr. Meixner around 2 p.m., two graduate students saw Murad Dervish walking the halls of the hydrology building. One later told the police that she was terrified of him as soon as she saw him. And she and her fellow student barricaded themselves in a professor's office before calling 911. It seems that the, Amy, that the fear on this, in this department among stu- students and professors was widespread. Everyone seemed to really fear Murad. And everyone did exactly what they were supposed to do by reporting it in the appropriate channels. And that is so, f- that's such a frustrating part of this, but a- you're absolutely right. Um, these students describe seeing Murad wearing multiple layers of clothes and donning a face mask as he walked, as well as noticing that he was carrying a white plastic bag. But only seven minutes after their initial call, UAPD received the call that Thomas Meixner had been shot. So they called ahead of time. According to the female staff member in the lobby at the time of the shooting, Thomas's last words to his assailant were, quote, I knew you were going to do this. It's absolutely heartbreaking. We'll return after a brief word from our sponsors. First responders took Thomas to the Banner University Medical Center, but he was pronounced dead only 15 minutes later at 2.35 p.m. Law enforcement tracked Murad quickly, and within three hours, he'd been apprehended on the highway heading out of Arizona and towards Mexico. So he was fleeing. Did he? He didn't try to hide his face or anything, right? Everyone knew exactly who he was. They knew who he was, but they they did say there was a face mask. I'm not sure if it covered his entire face, mm-hmm. or if they recognized, or if he put it on late, or if they just recognized him from clothing, a walk. You know, there are various ways that people can recognize um, others. But he was apprehended on the highway, and in the back of his car, they found two loaded handguns, five knives two machetes, rounds of ammunition, three cell phones, a bag to block cell signals and prevent tracking, and a can of mace. All right, clearly a guy on a mission with a plan. A walking terror. Yeah. He was immediately arrested for the murder of Dr. Thomas Meixner. Murad confessed to the murder during his interview with detectives, along with saying spontaneous things like, I wish I could start this day over. And there's a lot of evidence against me. Um, he explained that he had shot Dr. Meixner because the chair had given him a bad grade and had been at the forefront of his dismissal from the university, citing, quote, I just felt so disrespected by the whole department. What's going on with this offender? What does his past look like? That's a great question here. Um, and as the detectives began to look at this, you know, wondering, could one academic grade cause someone to snap? They actually found a long history of violent behaviors and a criminal history. Um, Murad's father, Dalgan Dervish, did several interviews during the media storm surrounding Thomas Meixner's murder. Dalgan recalled hearing about Murad's arrest and thinking, "If quote, it finally happened. He killed somebody. And said he felt like his son was always a ticking time bomb. We've heard this in other cases, and this is so frustrating because these things could be prevented. 
If you knew your son was a ticking time bomb, why were you just sitting idly by waiting for something to happen? Well, listen to this first. Okay. According to Dahlgren, Murad had exhibited disturbing anger issues from a young age um, that he and Murad's mother had very had difficulty controlling. Born in 1976, Murad was diagnosed with Asperger's as a young child. But Dahlgren explained that there weren't the therapies and medications in the 1980s that are available Mm -hmm. for autistic people today, Mm -hmm. which absolutely I would agree. And though they enrolled him in special schools and brought him to therapy when it became available, Murad refused to follow treatment plans and he began abusing alcohol as a teenager, which then exacerbated violent outbursts. Okay. Um, Dahlgren said he found a suicide note in Murad's pocket when his son was 18 and they sent him to therapy again, but to little avail. During his undergraduate years at Penn State, Murad pulled a knife on a pizza man and threatened him, for which he spent a short stint in jail. A few years later, Amy, he attacked his own father in Dalgan's restaurant, throwing dishes and other cooking implements at Dalgan and hitting him in the back, for which Murad served a second short prison sentence. So after this, he was an adult and Dalgan refused to take him in after he got out. He was simply afraid of him. Hearing what you said, the family did try to get him help. There's only so much you could do, unfortunately. Absolutely. And they really tried to their credit. After this, Murad went to San Diego to live with his mother. Uh, Apparently, the two had divorced. And he ended up in this place having a neighbor take out a restraining order against him, as well as other protective orders that prohibited him from owning firearms. In addition, after only a few months in San Diego, Murad attempted to kill his mother in a violent outburst. She called the police and he was put in jail a third time. So why do they keep putting him in jail? Why not send him to um, a forensic hospital? It sounds like he has some mental health issues. I would have to agree with you. Um, I'm not sure if it was the timing or he... His mother, you know, again, maybe he tried to kill his mother. We can speculate that she also didn't press charges or that, Mm -hmm. you know, she said it wasn't as serious. You don't know what the actual charges were, what the complaint is. Mm -hmm. He might have been evaluated at the scene. And look, while he had a violent outburst before, maybe he's calm now and doesn't seem like there's anything Mm -hmm. wrong other than he's committed a crime and should be processed. It's hard to know what was going on during the time of arrest. But I think it's a great question. In his interview, Dahlgren recalled telling law enforcement that Murad needed more than a prison sentence. He said he needed mental health treatment. Dahlgren said, quote, you can't just put him in prison and punish him and think that in two years you can let him out. Mm -hmm. Nothing will be done. And so this is a great point as well about punishment versus meaningful rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. He clearly needed rehabilitation as as well as punishment. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that there wasn't a, a need for both. But it didn't sound like he got any meaningful rehabilitation in the system, which we know is is not it, that's a reality, right? I mean, how, how much rehabilitation do you hear from offenders? Um, I would say that didn't necessarily stem from their own wanting to be rehabilitated. My question for you would be: uh, When I speak to a lot of offenders who feel that they've been rehabilitated after long periods of time, oftentimes it is because they wanted to be, and they participated willingly in programs, and they saw the need for change, and they also got the help they needed. It doesn't sound like he's getting any help; he's just getting punishment. 
that's correct. And I don't think he saw the need for help, right? Um, and that's what happens also with short prison stints when you're in and out of prison. It's not enough time to make any meaningful connections or meaningful therapies. Okay, Mira Dervish is in jail awaiting trial, which was scheduled for September 19th of 2023. And though his defense team filed for a change of venue due to Tucson media poisoning the possible jury pool, Mm -hmm. a judge has denied the request and the trial will remain in Tucson. Any information on competency hearings? I believe at this time, uh, although I didn't see much, I believe at this time he is competent to stand trial because there have not been any delays due to competency hearings. And you haven't heard anything about him using an insanity defense? Because it sounds like there might be something. It, it sounds like that might be it sounds like that might be a viable option for his defense team. I'm not saying that I agree with it, but I would be surprised if they didn't try for that. I think that's probably something we can anticipate because his trial date has also been postponed until sometime in 2024 Mm -hmm. at the request of his defense team Uh saying that they need more time to prepare. Yep. So I think that you are correct and that will probably I would be surprised if we didn't see an insanity claim here. Now, what about the university? I mean, the university here had a lot of warning. Mm -hmm. Um, There were a lot of actions they could have taken. And this was recent. Right. This was recently. Yes. I mean, he's awaiting trial right now because unfortunately, the last decade, we've heard of many similar cases. And I would think colleges and universities are more equipped to handle these situations and they take any threat seriously. So I'm surprised to hear based on what the university did or didn't do. I would have expected this to have happened in the 90s. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, Let me start talking. Let me talk about the university aftermath. But I want to start with what they did in the immediate and how it relates to the death of Thomas Meixner. Classes were suspended. UA held a candlelight vigil in Thomas Meixner's memory, which was attended by hundreds of students and all of Thomas's friends and colleagues. Faculty and past mentees spoke of Thomas's lust for life and how difficult his loss was. Some of the remarks, Amy, were really beautiful, so I'm just going to read a couple of them. He was very committed to the science, but at the same time, he was very engaged in the world, so the science got out past the ivory tower. He was connected to a lot of people in the region, did a lot of collaborative work. This was from a doctoral student who met weekly with Dr. Meixner for six years. She went on to say how heavily she was inspired by her mentor, even as he was diagnosed with cancer in 2018. She said that he loved life and lived life to the fullest and never let it stop him. She recalled Thomas, quote, really had a unique zeal and enthusiasm for how he lived his life and the kindness he brought to the world. Another student recalled, quote, he was really empathetic about everything. He cared about these details in the life of people. The dean of hydrology department said of Thomas, quote, many department heads give up teaching because their administrative duties are heavy. But he was the type of person who just loved being in the classroom and continued to teach. She also recalled how Thomas had always enjoyed collaboration and tirelessly worked with multiple disciplines and colleagues at the university to accomplish his goals. Finally, Thomas's friend and colleague Paul Brooks said of Thomas, quote, He really was a gifted interdisciplinary scientist who could connect chemistry, hydrology, and biology together for really meaningful, insightful work. But the most important thing about Tom is he was 
such a powerful force for good in science and academia in a very competitive world where things often aren't fair and where people work very hard and maybe aren't acknowledged to the level they should be. He was incredibly unselfish and supportive of everyone. This seemed to be the sentiment around the campus. Hundreds of flowers, candles, photographs, and offerings were left in his memory around the hydrology's building entrance in the days following. And many students attended his funeral wearing buttons bearing a red heart with Dr. Thomas Meixner written in the center. Carried by his two sons and his colleagues, Dr. Meixner was interred at the Holy Pope Cemetery on October 8, 2022, following a full Catholic Mass at his home church of St. Cyril of Alexandria in Pima County, Arizona. After classes resumed, the university created the Thomas Meixner Memorial Fund to honor his legacy. But Amy, despite the outpouring and love of love and support for Meixner and his family by the university, the big question still hanging over the situation was, how had this happened? Mm-hmm. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. Megan, I would have to assume that some top administrators were forced to resign after this tragedy. Yeah, let me tell you what happened. Um, After his funeral, the faculty created a committee that wrote a letter to the administration that showcased the several places communication broke down between the agencies Um, And, you know, how that had led to the murder, but also depleted morale and created anxiety and fear on part of the faculty. Especially with the amount of ammunition and other supplies police located in Murad's car, the faculty letter noted that October 5th could have been even worse, as Murad had been looking for four other hydrology faculty members who'd remember since moved their offices because of their fear of him. Do we know if... Meisner was planning on moving his office or was he just not scared any information on why some faculty did and he didn't? I don't know why Meisner didn't move his office. Um, I did not find that information, although I do know that he was the chair and probably felt more of a commitment to being there, Mm -hmm. which is very, very unfortunate. Yes. The letter also went on to state, quote, the lack of a central risk management system and the fragmentation of responsibilities related to violent risks resulted in institutional focus on legal risks and the neglect of violent risks. I think that's absolutely true. Um, Remember, the council had decided not to alert the rest of the university, the rest of the university about Murad's violence due to concerns about violating Murad's privacy policies. (laughs) Um, so what are the, do we know some of these policies? Um, have, you know, FERPA? Yep. The Family Educational Rights and Privacy and Privacy Act? Yeah, we can't talk to students' parents until they fill out one of those, correct? Um, this one, yeah, this restricts public access to certain records. Um, so yes, the point is to allow college level, uh, college students a level of independence and privacy when it comes to their records. Um, now this is important and, and this swings both way, right? Swings both ways, right? Um A lot of times parents will contact us and they want to know what's going on, but we are prevented from disclosing that information. They are adults. By the same token, I sometimes sympathize with these parents who are paying for their education and don't seem to be getting a straight answer. 
Um, but this does cover students' privacy in situations as well regarding mental health accommodations. So you can think of it like the HIPAA for the academic world. However, there's limitations to FERPA, with exceptions for superseding privacy in the interest of public health and safety emergencies. Unfortunately, that's subjective because what some person might, what one administrator views as a public, uh, you know, a public health issue or a public crisis is something different. Well, I have to tell you, the faculty thought it was pretty serious and I would Mm -hmm. have to agree. Um, And they felt that their letter wasn't taken seriously. Um, And so they basically, uh, the, the president at the time, Dr. Robert Robbins, Uh, agreed to have a safety audit conducted on the university's policies by an external organization. Um, So this safety audit provided by the PACS group looked at over 1,200 documents relating to campus security, as well as an audit of employee and student emails and text with regards to Murad's behavior. So through the audit, the PACS group supported UA's faculty in their statement of communication breakdowns. And they revealed three areas in which the university needed to change its policies. So the first one was understanding and managing threat and creating a threat assessment management team. I'm kind of surprised they didn't already have one. Um, The second one was providing consistent, empathetic and compassionate response from law enforcement. The third, repairing decentralized teams and communication breakdowns to include centralized safety and security training across the university. I think that's absolutely true. Remember, University of Arizona is a huge school. It's not as small as our campus. So there are so it is much more fragmented. Even in our small school, you can see the departments are very fragmented. Um, this audit is an extensive 200 page document that details not just the issues that allowed Dr. Meixner's murder to happen, but also provides university administration other recommendations for change. After the audit's publication, President Robbins made a public statement citing, quote, as this report reveals, there were systemic issues across our university that should have been identified and corrected. I'm angry at myself that I did not do more to prevent this tragedy. President Robbins also announced that the university would be immediately putting several of those recommendations into effect. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, in addition to some of those recommendations, uh, there would be installing combination code locks on all classrooms, automatically enrolling all students in the campus alert system, Mm -hmm. and implementing regular crisis response drills. Now, despite these changes and President Robbins personally apologizing to the faculty for not taking their concerns seriously, the UA Faculty Senate still submitted a vote of no confidence against UA's president as they still believe administration had a combative, non-constructive response that ultimately resulted in the murder. Um, That doesn't surprise me. A no confidence vote is quite serious, though. It can be initiated by the faculty at a time where they want to send a strong statement that they no longer have confidence in the president or administration. It's used very sparingly. Although the board of trustee remains behind President Robbins and they're looking for a way forward through the tragedy, it seems clear that it's going to take time and effort to bring up faculty trust and morale in the coming years. So I'm not sure what the position is with President Robbins going forward, yeah. but no, uh, no confidence vote is quite serious. I would, I would expect that he's going to step down after a no confidence vote. 
I don't think you have a. I don't think you have much of a choice after a no confidence vote. I mean, the board of trustees stood behind, uh, standing behind him initially. Yeah. Um, you know, thinking that he took responsibility for. And listen, it. I'm not saying it's his fault. I'm. I'm not saying I don't know exactly the. The individual, I don't know the exact circumstances. I'm just, I would just be surprised if after a vote of no confidence that he sticks around. Yeah, I would have to agree. Um, Okay, so as for Meixner's family, well, they also sued the university for $9 million, citing that the university's lackluster response to Murad's violent threats directly led to Thomas's murder. And in support of that statement, by the way, about the president, this wasn't the fault of one person. This was a systematic failure. Their civil suit at this time is still ongoing. Now, as we come to the end, as we've discussed in a few other episodes, anytime policy changes are put into effect, the best way to ensure they will be effective is to, to roll them out slowly and with a lot of careful planning ahead of time. Shouldn't be a knee jerk reaction. Um, if if too many new policy changes are enacted all at once, again, in a reactive manner to a tragedy, they usually won't be effective. We certainly hope that UA's new safety and security measures will help change the culture of the school and keep the faculty and students safe. We will do an update, or at least we will update our podcast listeners to the status after Murad Dervish's trial is completed. If our listeners are interested in learning about the life and legacy of Dr. Thomas Meixner, you can check out the Urban Water Innovation Network at erams, E-R-A-M-S dot com slash U-W-I-N. Dr. Meixner was a major contributor to UWIN in both his time and research. So there's also a nice memorial to him on the site, as well as videos of a few of his lectures. Um, it seems that in the end, he was quite the man who had quite the impact on students, faculty, and the university as a whole. Before we go today, if you'd like to support Campus Killings, consider subscribing to the show with an Abjack Insider subscription through Apple Podcasts. Your subscription will get you VIP access to all the shows on the network that not only includes hundreds of episodes of ad-free listening, but also bonus content and early access to episodes. For only $4.99 a month or $49.99 a year, you'll unlock a variety of listener benefits and you'll be supporting this show in the process. Head over to Apple Podcasts and search for either Campus Killings or Abjack and you can start your subscription with a free trial. Your support is greatly appreciated. Thank you everyone for listening today and we hope you'll join us on the next episode of Campus Killings. Campus Killings is hosted by Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Schlossberg with research and writing by Abigail Belcastro. It's produced by Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to follow Campus Killings on social media. You can find Campus Killings on Twitter with the handle at Campus Killings or on Facebook at facebook.com slash campus killings. You can also visit the show's homepage at campuskillings.com. Be sure to tune in every other Saturday for new episodes of Campus Killings.